0: Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Yeah, it's been a very long week, but you know what makes it really long is when I come to Saturday and to Sunday, and now I have a son— Okay, who is old enough to argue with his old man about the thing that uh, that young men and old men have been arguing about since before the days? We argue about football. And as he's gotten older, now he's more and more invested in college football than I've ever been. And then today, he's even more invested in the Ravens than I've ever been invested in the NFL. And I feel like I've done a good job parenting. We tried to raise our kids to have strong opinions. Unfortunately, he has strong opinions about things he really doesn't need to have strong opinions about. But nevertheless, we do a lot of arguing about this. And so I remind him, and he's a huge Oklahoma State fan, all right? That's where my sister-in-law went. He's been on the field. Like, I under. Stand his passion. But every time Oklahoma State is on this screen, we have got to argue about this. So I remind him on occasion, because I am not an Oklahoma State fan, I remind him on occasion that when, I, when Jenny and I first got married, a friend of mine gave me this little pin that I put on my sun visor in my truck. And I remind him of the truth of this. He said, there are two kinds of people in the world, West Virginia fans and those who wish they were. He doesn't laugh like you just did. I don't I don't know why. But there are two kinds of people in the world and it got me to thinking, well, how else might we divide the world if WVU is not the, you know, the sort of the Occam's razor that we divide the world into? Well, there's lots of ways we might do that, right? There are those who properly believe the toilet paper should go over and there are others, thank you, and there are others who believe it should go under. So that's where your strong opinions are. Not football, toilet paper, gotcha. There are those who set one alarm in the morning and those who set five. You can go get their phone, you know, it's every five minutes. I'm like, that's a horrible, horrible way to live. But you do you. There are those who when they break open the Hershey bar, you take the one little square. And those of you who just take a bite, you barbarians. There are those... Who use bookmarks versus those who fold the page down? What are you doing? (laughs) There are those who have 10,000 unread emails on their phone. and Then there are those of you who have two. I'm proud to be in the two category. I cannot live like you all live with 10. That number is just screaming at you the whole time. How, how, How do you live that way? There are those who, you know, you come to these websites, you know, and you got to put in your age, you know, we got to, and there are those of you who actually scroll down and put in your birthday, and then there are those of you who go to the year, you spin it until it hits 1900, and then you hit send. There are those of you who, when you installed your Wi-Fi router... You just left that gobbledygook name, you know, axy seven four zero, And then there are those of us who call your router, you know, pretty fly for a Wi-Fi. Or as one of my confirmands named something, the FBI surveillance van. Imagine my surprise when I was trying to get our system hooked up in confirmation this week for music. And I look on my phone to try to get the Wi-Fi and it says FBI surveillance van. I'm like, that's interesting. Whose is that? They earned up to it. I won't embarrass them here, but they earned up to it. We laugh about this, and rightfully so. But when it comes to how we view faith, morality, justice, we do this as well. There are two kinds of people in the world. Most of us are predisposed to divide the world into good people and bad people. We might Christianize it a little bit and say there's the righteous and then there are the unrighteous. For what it's worth, you 10,000 unopened email people are a part of the unrighteous. But nevertheless, we do this, right? Even when we come to the end of our lives, like, well, he is a good per- I'm a good person, or this person was a good person. Like, we do this. We say things like, I love that guy, or we say things like, you don't want to be that guy. We divide people into good and bad all the time. Now, I'm not trying to be too overly harsh about this. This feels very natural to us because, and I go back to my son and I go back to childhood, it's one of the first ways that we make sense of the world around us. It's one of the first ways that we begin to create moral categories. We say, okay, this kind of thing, this kind of person These kind of behaviors or activities I find acceptable and good, and they're reinforced as positive behaviors. And on the other side, there are things that we, you know, believe that we find unacceptable and we believe that, you know, they're therefore bad. Again, from the very beginning of how we develop, we do this because you have to start somewhere, right? And our parents help us with that, you know, like we say like, hey, your grandparents, they're wonderful, you know, on one hand. And on the other hand, you know, stranger danger, like we do this. But this way of morally framing the world takes us down roads that fail to, to that don't develop around side the complexity that we'd start to discover in the world. What is fine for college football, the good guys and the bad guys, requires far more nuance in the matters of the heart. Anybody that sits and thinks about this for five minutes, and people do not break down easily into good people and bad people because people are complex. I mean, ask. Ask a question of yourselves. Are you a good person or a sinful person? Which side of this are you on? Any one of us who thinks about it for 30 seconds go, well, that's a hard question to answer, as it should be. To discover clarity in people requires nuance. It's not quite that easy. And because of this reason... I continue to find Jesus and the way that he thinks about people fascinating. Because Jesus demonstrates a great deal more complexity in how he interacts with people than sometimes our culture invites us to do. So when it comes to Jesus, I just don't want to do what he did. What I want to do with Jesus is to think how he thought. Let me say it again, not just to do what Jesus did, which is fine and good. I really want to see, I want to think the way that Jesus thought. And Jesus just sees people differently. He doesn't see, rarely, rarely divides people into good people and bad people. Jesus provides much more nuance than that. But in providing that nuance, he makes it a little uncomfortable for us every once in a while. Today, Jesus tells us a story about two kinds of people. Luke opens it in this way. It says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. So perhaps you've heard this story. It's easy to form a mental image of this. So the first guy, a Pharisee, goes to the temple to pray. And his prayer, admittedly, fails to reflect good reformed piety. Most of us would not pray this way. At least we wouldn't do it out loud. Where he says, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) Brother, that's, that's pretty bold to crawl up at the front of the sanctuary and say that. But that's what he does. Let me give pause here for a second. We are given no reason to think he's not telling the truth. None at all. We are given every reason to believe that he is moral. He is pious. He is generous. I mean... I don't know about you, but I wouldn't crawl up in front of God and say I fast twice a week if I wasn't actually doing that. And so we have every reason to believe that what he says he is, he actually is. And if we take away a little bit of what you and I hear, of the arrogance in that prayer, I thank you that I'm not like other people, let's be honest. This might be the guy that you wanted your kid going to homecoming with. He fasts, he goes to church, he prays. Sounds like a decent guy. On the other hand, we don't know much about this tax collector. The best that we can assume, just because he's identified in a tax collector, is that his life is not in a good situation. Maybe he chose to be a tax collector. and I have every belief that there have been many people before me who have talked about what being a tax collector in ancient Rome was all about. And so basically it was like, you go collect the taxes and then you pay yourself by collecting anything on top of that. So maybe he chose it. Maybe he said, I'm going to make a living ripping off other people. Maybe he wanted to get rich quick. Maybe he wanted power. Maybe he liked being able to walk up to people's doors and just say, give me all your money. Basically legalized theft. Or maybe he didn't have a choice. Maybe he couldn't get hired anywhere else and the only people who would take him are the Romans. You and I don't know. But whatever burden he carries, it remains hidden to us but it's a burden nevertheless. This man is not comfortable with where he's at. He's not pleased with where he's at. And it tells us that he stays far off, he lowers his head, beats his chest, and he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, there's some complexity to this guy. Like, he's a tax collector. He's associated with the wrong people. He's probably not a good homecoming date for your kid because he's either... He's back there, beating his chest and praying, "God, be merciful to me, a sinner." He's either a religious fanatic or he's actually as bad as he says he is, and neither is great when you're looking for a date. But here we have two people: one obviously righteous, and one with a hidden sinfulness. And Jesus intends us to put them side by side and to make a judgment. And the question we are asked in this parable is, "Well, where do you locate yourself?" Where do you locate that person that you're struggling with right now? Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody at work, maybe it's, you know, somebody that just historically you just don't get along with. Where do you put yourself in this equation and where do you put that person? Where do you locate that person who has different beliefs than you, a different worldview than you? The longer you sit with it, the harder It becomes. This, of course, is the beauty of Jesus' stories. They do not come to a clear ending. They keep getting more and more complex. Put yourself next to the Pharisee, and you are then forced to reckon with your supposed moral superiority. We say, you know what, I am a good person. But then we're forced to say, well, where do we get off saying that? Put yourself next to the tax collector, And all of a sudden we have to come face to face with our own sinfulness. But in the reverse, put your enemies alongside the Pharisee and you're forced to reconcile the idea that there actually is good in them. Put your enemies alongside the tax collector and suddenly you're forced to reckon with the lowliness, humility, and self-understanding that the tax collector has. But let's step back from this all for a second. How does Luke open this story? Luke is trying to get us to read it in a certain way. He opens this story to shed light on those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and had contempt on others. The issue for Jesus, and Luke seems to suss this out, it appears, the question for Jesus is not whether we are righteous or not. That is a complicated question. The issue is where the righteousness that we do have, where does that come from? Hear it again. The issue is not whether we are righteous or not. There is, of course, righteousness in all of us. The question is, where do we understand that coming from? That's the question. The Pharisee, for all his goodness, believed that that goodness came from himself. His prayer of gratitude might have been prayed to the Lord, but he's really praying about himself, is he not? The Pharisee locates his righteousness entirely in his own actions and being. The tax collector, on the other hand, knows that, the, that he possesses no means by which he might claim righteousness. He's not right by the temple. He's not right by his neighbors. And he feels the burden of that. He knows he's not right in his own soul. He has no place to locate goodness in himself. Nobody is telling him he's a good person. He has done nothing of merit. And for this reason, he stands back, hardly daring to approach the temple, and throws himself on the only source of goodness he has left. And it's not in himself, it's in God. For all of his screw ups, he's still going, God is, I'm still good enough for the Lord. And in this way, he is too overwhelmed by his plight to take time to divide humanity into two kinds of people. His gaze is fully and completely in this moment, not on himself. It is on God. And in this way, Jesus wants us to hear loud and clear. For Jesus, the most dominant categories are not good people and bad people. For Jesus, the most dominant categories are the proud and the humble Whatever we believe about ourselves and our adversaries, we're all sinners. The question is are we proud sinners or are we humble sinners? Is the righteousness inside of us, do we carry that around with pride or the righteousness that God has given us, do we carry that around with humility? Because if we're proud sinners, if we poke our chests out and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, then we will walk around concocting ways to justify ourselves in our own eyes by favorably comparing ourselves to those whom we deem worse than us. And so we engage in this. It's always me versus them. Am I better than them? Am I going up or am I going down on the list? It's always about comparing to others. But if we are humble sinners, we throw ourselves entirely on the mercy of God. James. Who was described to us as Jesus' brother picks up on this later when in his epistle he writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now both friends went home exactly as they had come to the temple. We don't know that anything changed by them going to the church to pray. The righteous man, we presume, went home righteous. I have little doubt that he was a good man, did wonderful things, was loved by family and community and admired. And I bet he continued to fast and I bet he continued to pray and I bet he continued to be super, super generous. The tax collector probably went back to his job to tax collect. Everybody went home the same way. We have no evidence that the tax collector suddenly becomes this righteous man. We get that story later in Zacchaeus, but we're not given that here. The scriptures don't tell us that. What the scriptures do tell us is that the tax collector went home justified. Now, what is justification? What does that even mean? Justification means to be made right in his relationship to God. Again, to be justified is to be made right in one's relationship to God. The righteous man... The Pharisee walks away, still a good person, but is still not right with God for all of his morality. You understand? He's right with his neighbors, but he is not yet right with God. He doesn't properly understand what God requires, and he doesn't understand that righteousness does not come from us. It comes from God. It is given as a gift. The tax collector has a long way to go in his relationships with others. We understand that. There's much to be amended in his life. But in this prayer, he understands his relationship with God. I bring nothing of my own. I cast myself on the mercy of God Almighty. And in this way, it is the tax collector who understood the assignment It is the tax collector who understood what Jesus will say later when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you as well. You see, there may be two kinds of people in the world. But from our point of view of faith, and I'm not trying to make any bigger claim than just from a Christian point of view, there is only one kind of God. We are, And that God is described, the one who opposes stands far off from the proud, but the one who always is generous and draws near to the humble. Practicing that faith requires us to rework the way that we think about the world, to see our world differently than we so often do, to see it differently than the way the rest of the world does, not to divide into good people and bad people, but rather to call one another into humility and to right relationship with God. And this story has done that throughout generations. This story and the prayer that this tax collector prays is the back half of one of the world's most famous and most prayed prayers. It's probably not as famous as the Lord's Prayer because that's written in the scriptures. But there's a prayer that comes to us from antiquity, from the ancients, and it is rather simply called the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus Prayer goes this way. It goes, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. That backside comes from what this tax collector prays. It's interesting, is it not, that one of the most famous prayers in all the world is the prayer of a tax collector, not of a righteous man. But nevertheless... Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in this way, in a single prayer, we are given a pathway to right relationship with God. And we are encouraged to pray it with our breathing. And so the first half of it, we take this deep breath in and we say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, remembering who God is, remember what Jesus came to do, and remember Jesus' relationship with us. And then finally, we exhale the back half of it, have mercy on me, a sinner filling ourselves and our lungs up with the goodness of God and exhaling all of ourselves so that we might be filled with the presence of God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the one who can pray this and who makes that in and out flow, the person who prays this is the one who, like the tax collector, is made justified before God, who understands the assignment that our goodness comes from God alone. And we simply pray for God to increase that goodness in us. Because there is good in you and me. Whether we are a good person or a bad person, wherever we put ourselves on that scale, there is goodness in you and me and there is much that is to yet be made good. Yes, there's sin in our lives. Well, we haven't yet been fully formed. Thanks be to God, we have a ways to go. And the good that we find in ourselves, well, it's a gift from day one. And it is still a gift. So let's locate that goodness where it belongs. Not with, look how good I am but to understand that all of that goodness is God's presence in me. And when we start to see ourselves in that light, we also start to see our neighbors in that light as well. Whatever goodness in me is a gift. Whatever goodness I can see in another is a gift as well. And every time we look into the eyes of somebody that we consider a good person or a bad person, we start setting them down, and we look them in the eyes and we say, that's God's child and the good- there is goodness in there and that goodness is a gift of God. Good or bad, righteous or unrighteous. We look in the eyes every time of someone who is both filled with God's mercy and in need of more. And in this way we can pray for ourselves and we can pray for others. And So there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who look upon others with compassion and those who cannot. May we follow the way of Christ who calls us not to be proud, to lay aside our own self-righteousness and to be filled with mercy as a gift. All of our goodness being a gift of God Almighty.